Good morning. It's a time, this time of year, of counting our blessings and to be thinking about the gifts that we've been given. As you enumerate those, be thankful that not every year is an election year. Starting next year, you're going to begin to see signs popping up in yards all over the place. Rhetoric that's always existent will ratchet up and we'll hear debates and there'll be formal and informal debates everywhere. There will be, if you happen to be so unlucky as to have to watch commercials somewhere, they'll be popping up everywhere and it'll just seem like it goes on forever. But it is a part of God's government that there be those leaders who are at the head of nations. And it has had different appearances throughout time. Sometimes those that sit in power are those that one would classify as dictators. And of course in our current system we have those that stand in the executive branch that we call presidents. That have some of the vestiges of what we're talking about. But perhaps the most common way that men have been ruled throughout time have been by kings. You know as we think about the subject of Jesus the King of Kings. They say that any statue that is two times or more than life size is colossal. And if that's the case, Jesus is the most colossal figure of all times. He is so great that John would say about him at the very end of his gospel that he also did many other things, the which if they were written, I suppose that the world could not contain all the books that would be written. Amen. John 21, 25. He has made his mark on the calendars of the world. He is the permanent object of human faith. He is the preeminent subject of human thought. It was said that some years ago that some of the prominent literary men met in a club room in London and they began to discuss the greatest figures of all time. One of them asked, what would we do if Milton were to enter this room? And another answered, I suppose we would give him an ovation that would compensate for the long overdue recognition not given to him in his day. Another asked, what would we do if Shakespeare entered this room? And the reply was, we would stand and make him the master of song. And then someone said, what would we do if Jesus Christ were to enter into this room? And a man named Charles Lamb said, I believe that we would all fall on our face and kiss the hem of his garment. The book of Hebrews begins by saying to us that God who spoke to the fathers by the prophets in many portions in many ways has in these last days spoken unto us in his son whom he has appointed heir of all things by whom he has made the worlds. He is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature who upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty on high. Hebrews 1, verse 1 through verse 3. If you look at a passage like Hebrews chapter 1, you will see all the reasons why he is not just king. He is the king of kings. He has a unique place in the world order. Being distinct from the Father, he is nonetheless near him at his right hand side. And yet being one with the Father, he sits enthroned with him. I take your attention back to Jesus hanging on the cross, which we've just commemorated in the Lord's Supper. And you remember in Matthew 27 and verse 37, 
that Pilate of his own accord wrote over Jesus' cross, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. It was written in Latin, the language of government and law. It was written in Greek, the language of culture. And it was written in Hebrew, the language of religion. And for all the dominant cultures of the day, it was a suggestion that Jesus is to be regarded as the king. On one occasion, Jesus is being bombarded by opponents who are asking him questions. And Jesus answers every one of them. And in reply, he has but one question. In Matthew 22 and verse 42, he says, What do you think of Christ? Wow, what a question that is pregnant with meaning. In so many different directions that we might go in the answer to that. But I'd like for us to look at the claims and the evidences that point us to the very fact that Travis just read so well a moment ago that not only is Jesus king, but he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. This morning I'd like for us just for very a few brief moments to look at why Jesus is the king of kings. First of all, I suggest to you that Jesus is the king of kings because of his miraculous entry. read a story about a, a birth that took place on November 1st, 1661. The mother was a shy Spanish queen named Mary Therese. The father was a very brash king known as Louis XIV of France. And as the day approached and the labor pains began... Then the royal palace began to be filled with countesses and princesses and dukes. And as the contractions went on, there were musicians and actors who began to dance ballets outside of the royal window, playing harps and guitars and castanets. After 12 grueling hours of labor, in which the queen reportedly said over and over again, I don't want to give birth, I want to die. She was able to give birth to a healthy baby boy. But it was much ado about nothing. That boy grew up to be a man and at the age of 50 in 1711 he died of smallpox four years before his father died and so he never spent one day as a king. In fact you would say that the greatest thing that was ever said about Louis Dauphine was that he was born. He accomplished nothing after that. I want you to contrast that with the way that the Son of God entered into this world. And you think about the lowly status that Mary and Joseph had as Luke the writer gives it to us. We see that they, this insignificant couple, went to the insignificant village of Bethlehem and yet there was no place found for him to be born inside. Luke chapter 2 and verse 7. That they rubbed their shoulders with the working class shepherds who came to see him as he lay in a manger. Luke chapter 2 and verse 15. They were so poor apparently according to Luke chapter 2 verse 24. As we understand Leviticus chapter 5 and verse 11. That they could not offer the standard offering. And so they brought the bird offering of the poor people when they brought Jesus to present him in the temple. Never has the importance of a king been so underwhelmingly seen as in what takes place when Jesus comes into this world. The coming of Jesus is foretold by the prophet 700 years before his birth in Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14. And Matthew shows us the fulfillment of this as we open up the New Testament. 
Remember that Joseph is considering what to do with Mary because of the condition in which she finds herself and the angel speaks to Joseph and he says, Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife because that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit and she shall bring forth a son and you shall call his name Emmanuel which being interpreted is God with us. Matthew 1, 21-23. The virgin birth has been doubted and denied and ridiculed almost as much by theology as by blind unbelief. And yet God, in an act of God, brings Jesus into this world. Galatians 4 verse 4 says, God sent forth His Son made of a woman. And the Gospels give attestation to that, don't they? In Luke chapter 1 verse 34, it's Mary who's speaking to an angel. And she says, how can these things be? seeing that I do not know a man, that I'm a virgin. And the angel answered and said unto her, that the Holy Spirit shall uh, uh, overpower you, and the Most High will overshadow you. And therefore shall the child be called Holy, the Son of God, Luke 1, 34 and 35. The virgin birth stands at the threshold of the New Testament. The virgin birth is the first miracle of all that surrounds the life of Jesus Christ. There is nothing else. There is no value to a perfect life. There is no value to a death on the cross for others. There is no value in a burial and a resurrection without the miraculous entry into this world. It was the way by which God says that the one who is here is both son of God and son of man. He is the earthly son of a heavenly father. He is the heavenly son of an earthly mother. And so he is the king of kings. Because of his miraculous entry. But then second, as we continue to read in scripture, we see that Jesus is the king of kings because of his many miracles and signs. Throughout the gospels, this is borne out for us. When we see Jesus, for example, in John chapter 5 and verse 36 saying that these works that I am doing are indication that the Father has sent me. John the Baptist is about to die in prison, and so he sends his disciples to Jesus. And Jesus says, go back and tell John what it is that you see and what you hear, that the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are made cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have the gospel preached unto them, Matthew 11, 3 and 4. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, we read that Jesus went into all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and he healed all manner of diseases and sicknesses among the people. Jesus does this, and then he returns to heaven. And when Jesus is preached for the first time in Acts chapter 2, verse 22, the very first line of the very first sermon was, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved among you by God through miracles, wonders, and signs which God did in the midst of you, which you yourselves also know. Jesus is king of kings of all the kings of the world and of all the ages because of the many miracles and the signs that he did. I want you to consider some of the value of these miracles. That first of all, they had unusual publicity. The Apostle Paul is in prison for preaching Jesus Christ. And as he is defending what he's doing, despite the persecution that it's brought him, he says, these things were not done in a corner. You think about the miracles of Jesus. You think about how God brought his son into the world. 
Jesus was brought into the world in Palestine at the crossroads of civilization. It would be hard for us to think of a more populated place for Jesus to come than to come to Palestine. And once Jesus was in that country, I want you to see where Jesus does his miracles. He performs them in crowded cities, on busy street corners, in the marketplace, and in the temple in Jerusalem. Jesus makes sure that everyone sees what it is that he is doing so that all can know without mistake that these miracles and signs are a demonstration of something new and of something better. We also see that these miracles had the kind of variety that you would expect of deity. When you look at the miracles that Jesus performs, we see how he had the power. He demonstrates the power to dry up the leaves of a fig tree. He walks on water. He is able to increase food in volume. There are three instances where Jesus raises one from the dead. Jesus demonstrates in 17 of the recorded parables, um, rather miracles, his uh, power and preeminence over disease. When you look at Jesus and the different ways in which he demonstrates his power, it shows him to be the king of kings. We also see that as we look at Jesus' miracles, that they would be such a variety that when we look at their character and their quality, that they were humane. You look at what Jesus does by way of his miracles. They're full of dignity. They're full of benevolence and consideration. Not one of the miracles of Jesus is grotesque or childish or self-serving. So far as I can count, there are 35 recorded miracles of Jesus. And in not one of them can you see him glorifying himself or promoting himself. We also see that Jesus' miracles are validated by competent witnesses. Who all speaks in affirmation of what Jesus did? Well, there would have been those who would have been the recipients of those miracles themselves. There are a great many who would have seen these miracles and would have confirmed them. Mark chapter 2 and verse 12. There would have even been the testimony of the disobedient and the skeptical. I think of John's words in John 12, verse 42, when John says, Even also many of the rulers of the synagogues believed in Jesus, but for fear of the Pharisees and the chief priests, they would not confess him, lest they be put out of the synagogue, for they love the approval of men rather than the approval of God. But then there's the impact of the miracles in the witnesses themselves. On the other side of these miracles, look at the transformation in the lives of the apostles. Look at the rapid growth and the permanence of the church. When we behold the miracles that are being done, we see that Jesus is one like no other. He is king of kings because of the many miracles and the signs. Furthermore, I suggest to you that Jesus is king of kings because of his unique character. Why, it's amazing to see those who would be outside of the realm of whom you would consider to be those that would say these things who testify to his character. There's the cold, objective stare and assessment of Pilate who says, I find no fault in him. There's a dying thief on the cross next to him who would say he has done nothing amiss. There's a pagan soldier who witnesses six hours of suffering by Jesus on the cross and his closing argument would be truly this is the Son of God. 
Jesus finds himself numbered among those of whom the people are said to have weaknesses and struggles and sins, and yet Jesus navigated this life without ever sinning one time. When we look at the character of Jesus, what makes it even more remarkable is that 12,000 days would have been the approximate number of days that Jesus spent on this earth and we only have parts or whole of 50 of those days recorded by his inspired biographers Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That Jesus Christ could have such an impact on the world being born and raised in an obscure part of the Roman Empire to poor parents without economic and educational advantages and so change the world is remarkable. When you think about the life of Jesus and the life that he lived before others, if Jesus was merely a man, why have we not produced another one like him in 2,000 years? There's a unique character about Jesus Christ that sets him apart from all others. As we look at Jesus, the King of Kings, there's another thing that comes top of mind as we think about why he should be so designated. And that is his profound teaching. This is something that is the claims that he made, the doubting of the miracles that he did, nobody could answer the teaching that he did. Remember Jesus has just started his ministry. He's preached the Sermon on the Mount. And as the response to this in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 29, the people were astonished at his teaching for he taught as not as the scribes and Pharisees but as one having authority. In his own hometown in Luke chapter 4, in verse 22, when they heard the words that Jesus spoke, they were marveled at the gracious words that came out of his mouth. In Luke chapter 20 and verse 26, those that opposed him could not take hold of his words before the people. And they were amazed at him, and so they held their peace. John chapter 7 and verse 46, the soldiers of the scribes and the Pharisees were sent to arrest Jesus and instead they come back and they said, never spake any man as this man speaks. When you look at the teaching of Jesus in its various facets, I want you to consider how Jesus in his teaching often spoke in the face of and in contrast to the philosophy and the thinking of men. Man would say that this life is only about the material things, but Jesus would teach this, take heed and beware of covetousness. For a man's life does not consist in the abundance of the things that he possesses. Humanity might say that this life is all about popularity. It's about fame. It's about prominence and position. And Jesus says that this life is about service and love and humility. Matthew chapter 20 and verse 28. This world would would focus on the external and the outward, but Jesus rivets his attention on the heart. When we look at Jesus and his teaching, we realize how where the teaching of Jesus went, what you have is hatred and injustice and inequality being replaced by peace and joy. Jesus came to bring dignity and equality to those of all races and of all nations. Jesus in his teaching elevates women from virtual slavery. Jesus in his teaching helps those who are aged and who are sick and who are helpless. The golden rule, wherever it has been implemented, has done more social good for men than all of the governments and the diplomats and uh, all the efforts of revolutions combined. When you look at Jesus' teaching, he taught in a variety of ways. 
Jesus went from teaching and at times in parables to question and answers and object lessons and even the use of questions themselves. You know, when we look in the New Testament, we see that Jesus is called a teacher, but in some verses and in some versions, he is called rabbi. This had an elevated understanding for the Jewish people. When they thought about this, this was the idea of a great one who handled the law. Simeon, the son of Hillel, was the first to be called rabbin, greater than a teacher. But Jesus in John 20 and verse 16 is called rabbani, the greatest of all teachers. On 12 different occasions in the Gospels, Jesus is called rabbi, never in jest, never in ridicule. The point was that Jesus was the greatest teacher. But Jesus is our teacher too. When we look at the teaching of Jesus, we see, of course, that Jesus teaches us through the power of the Holy Spirit in Scripture. In John chapter 14 and verse 26, Jesus assures his disciples by saying, The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said unto you. Jesus has given us everything that we need for life and godliness, 2 Peter 1 and verse 3. And he's going to hold us accountable for it, John chapter 12 and verse 48. So he teaches us through scripture and that by itself would be enough. Seeing all that he did in contradistinction from the other teaching that had been done. But Jesus' teaching was made more powerful because Jesus teaches us by example. You know, the best teacher in my book is the one who shows me how it's done and doesn't just tell me how to do it. In 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 21, we see that Jesus was the perfect teacher by example because Jesus perfectly did everything that he taught. Not only did he hold up for us an ethic and a morality to live, he did it perfectly, 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 22. But Jesus also had the perfect attitude toward truth. Jesus taught that truth and only truth makes free. John chapter 8 and verse 32. Jesus was always kind and always loving. But Jesus' teaching was plain so that every hearer who heard Jesus teach, if the shoe fit, they were encouraged to put it on. An example of this would be the example of the rich young ruler. A young rich man who comes to Jesus and Jesus says to him that he should sell all of his possessions in order to please God. And scripture tells us that he sorrowed over him. And Mark says that he loved him, but he would not change his teaching in order to make the rich young ruler feel better. Jesus had the perfect attitude toward truth. But Jesus also had a perfect love for his students. What drove Jesus to teach was truth, but it was also love. Jesus did not care about position in this world. He did not care about possessions in this world. Jesus loved his teachers, and when they didn't receive his truth, he sorrowed not for himself, but for them. Jesus wanted everyone to be saved, even those who crucified him. So Jesus' teaching is profound because of the words that he spoke, but also the example that he gave. Then there was his approach. When you look at the approach of Jesus, you see that Jesus, in his approach, had the widest of visions. When Jesus' teaching is set forth, Jesus wanted men of all nations to be saved. So when he gives his last marching orders at the end of the Gospels, he sends his disciples into all the world to teach the Gospel to every creature. 
But he had the widest of vision because no matter where he found himself, with groups or individuals, he tailored his teaching to the needs of those to whom he spoke. But he also had the clearest of insights. Jesus did not attend schools of philosophy in order to know how to approach people. He did not need to. He did not need man to tell him what was in man because he himself knew what was in man. John 2.25, he could look into the hearts and the minds and the lives of those that he spoke to. And he could teach them as they needed it because he had the clearest insight into their needs. We also see that he was one who in his teaching had an unparalleled method and approach to those that he spoke to. When you look at Jesus and you look at his life and the way that he lived, Jesus had an ethic that he didn't just tell people to have, but that he demonstrated. Jesus didn't just talk about those things that were wrong. He got down to the heart of the matter. Then we also see that Jesus had a perfect way of bringing that truth to life. Jesus taught new truths in terms of old things, things that people already understood. The people of Jesus' days, they understood cooking. They understood buying land. They understood fishing and farming. And so Jesus applied it to perfectly to everyday life, the things that people needed to know. When you look at Jesus, he is a king. He is a king in diverse ways. You know, when you look at kings of all times, there are four things that are true of all kings. Kings are individuals that in their character and their makeup, they have thrones. But not only do they have thrones, they have crowns. They have scepters and they have swords. And Scripture indicates that Jesus has all of these. Jesus sits on a throne interceding for us. 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5. Jesus wore a crown of thorns, but now he wears the crown of victory. Jesus rules with a scepter in his hand. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 8. And Jesus wields the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12. And the fact that this king would be described as he is in Revelation 3 and verse 20. That he would say, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man will open up, I will come into him. And I will dine with him and he with me. That a king like we have described, a king who made a miraculous entry that was seen and known by the world, a king who would do so many miracles and signs, a king of such unique character and a king of such profound teaching would say, I am knocking on the door of your heart and I wish to come in. Not only should humble us, but it should make us want him to be our Lord and our king. You know, tomorrow much of the world is going to celebrate the birth of Jesus. But today all heaven would celebrate the birth of anyone who would respond to the kingship of Jesus and be born again. That's what he wants. And when you think about this time of year being that which is surrounded by gifts, the greatest gift that could be given by any one of us is a life in our homes, in our relationships, in which Jesus Christ is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Heaven's invitation is offered for those who are ready to give that gift. We sing that song, I gave my life for thee, what hast thou given for me? The greatest gift you could give the God who made you, to the King who is so described, is to give your life to Him. And we don't have to wonder how that's done. 
Jesus, the great profound teacher, tells us exactly how to do it. We respond to His grace and His sacrifice by believing that He is God's Son. He is the answer to our sins. As we repent from sins and are baptized, we're buried with Him in baptism to rise to walk in newness of life. And as we live submissive to His will, He is our Lord. But as those of us who are children of God, if we need to make Him king again, if we need to return to giving Him that place, that first place in our lives, there's an opportunity afforded as Jeremy leads us in this song of invitation. You need to submit once again and pledge your allegiance to that king. I want to give you that opportunity right now as we stand and sing.